please flip over in your Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As we continue to look at lessons learned in a pandemic. This is the last lesson that we're going to look at. There are many, many, many more lessons we could learn and think through. But this is the last one we're going to give our attention and our time to. And I'll remind you just here at the beginning that we're approaching... um, This a little differently than we normally do. Normally we open the scriptures. We take a passage. We sit on that passage. We walk through that passage. We dissect that passage. We camp out in that one singular passage. But as we look at these lessons. We're we're looking at the Bible more as a whole. and, And gathering principles out of it. And not necessarily sitting on one passage. But looking at many passages. And that's what we're going to do again today. Before we get to 2 Corinthians 5, that will be the first text we look at this morning. I want to relate to you a fictional story about a lady named Mary. I hope none of your names are Mary. But here's the fictional story. Mary was a woman who had everything that she ever wanted. See if you identify with Mary. She lived in a nice town, had a nice family, drove a nice car, And lived in a very large house. Everything she ever needed was within driving distance of her quiet, gated neighborhood. Groceries, pharmacy, spa, salon, gym, entertainment, shopping, on and on and on. Because of that convenience, Mary very rarely traveled out of her community. She preferred the comforts of her gated neighborhood and her large home. She did not understand why her children would ever want to grow up and move off as children tend to do. One day, while Mary was grocery shopping, she overheard a speech by a strange man on the corner by her grocery store. He kept telling people that if they would sell their homes and their cars and give up everything they owned and follow him, they would have a better life. A better life, she thought. Mary dismissed this man as ignorant and foolish. Besides, she had all she ever wanted, and she absolutely loved her life as it was. She had no desire to lose anything that she had, certainly not for something she couldn't see or, or understand, something mysterious. She loved her cars, she loved her home, she loved her family. She loved her town. She loved her comforts and her conveniences. Too much to give any of that up. However, the next week, Mary's home caught fire. After that, her car broke down. And as is the custom, her children graduated. were preparing to move out of the home. On top of that, her homeowners association decided to Remove the gates to their neighborhood and open up the community. All of a sudden, for Mary, things didn't feel good, safe, or secure anymore. On top of all of that, the Homeowners Association voted to expel Mary from the neighborhood because she no longer owned a home there. They ordered her to tear down her burned remains and to leave. In a week's time, all that Mary loved, desired, and treasured had been taken away from her. 
Mary was broken and desperate. And in her sobbing and panic, she remembered the strange man on the street corner. She ran to meet him. But when she arrived, the man was gone. There was only a small cardboard sign that read, Offer expired. She looked desperately for this strange man. She asked every passerby where he might be. She yelled for him, though she didn't know his name. Yet in all of her effort, all of her desperation, and even in her sincerity, Mary could not find the man. Mary spent the rest of her life without any of her treasured possessions. Her life had fallen apart. For it's a fickle world that we live in. That fictional story is too accurate for many of us. It has a fictional character in it and it's based on a fictional account and yet the principles in it are all too true. We love our comforts far too much and our conveniences far too much to give them up for something that doesn't make full sense to us. Yet the scriptures are clear. God promise, promises an eternal and abundant life to us if we but follow him. And to follow him, he says, you must lay down your life, deny yourself and take up your cross. You must surrender everything to him. You must be totally, wholly devoted to him. And then he promises further, then you will become citizens of a better country, citizens of heaven. But the problem for you and I and the problem for most people in our current context, our country, is that we love our earthly lives far too much, don't we? We live relatively easy lives. We have opportunities in front of us all the time. And to give any of that up for a home that we cannot see or cannot smell or cannot experience even now, that sounds foolish and ignorant. There are simply too many Marys in the world. People so consumed with their lives, so treasuring of their comforts, they never think nor even desire that which is glorious and transcendent. It's a sinful thing, church, to love this life more than the life to come. It's a sinful thing to care more about this life than about heaven. That's what we learn today in our final lesson. As we look at what we should be taught during such crisis that the world faces, we learn the importance of longing for and looking to heaven. That's who we are as God's people. We don't belong here anymore. The scriptures call us strangers and aliens. In times like this, where it's so abundantly clear that our world is broken, we should long ever more so for home, for heaven. And in that regard, we begin to become like light and salt. Let's look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, because this passage so adequately summarizes what I'm getting at. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, 
we have a building from God. A house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. He's contrasting here that which is temporary and finite to that which is eternal and infinite. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What, a, what an adequate depiction. What a very accurate depiction of life in this fallen world. This life is defined by groaning, right? Something's not right. Something's, something's broken. Something's not complete. It's not whole. I groan. There's something deep within me that, that feels burdened. I'm burdened for something greater. I'm burdened for something transcendent. I, I believe every human heart longs for transcendence. Something greater than this mere existence. The problem is, we try to define transcendence or find transcendence in everything but God. And only God is truly transcendent. Only God is greater than this, this life, our Creator. And Paul writes and admits, while we're in this tent, verse 2, we groan, we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. That's, that's the description of the Christian. The question is, is that true of you and I? Do we long... For our heavenly dwelling. Do we hate and despise the sin in our flesh enough? Do we hate the injustices in our world enough? Do we hate the disease and the famine and the crisis that we're constantly plagued with in this fallen life? Do we hate those things enough that we agree with Paul? I long to put on my heavenly dwelling. Or do we more so identify with Mary? I can get over all those disease and famine and suffering because I really like how life is going right now. Got a good bank account. My dreams are coming true. My pursuits are coming true. And Paul says as Christians we groan because we have and we know we have a greater dwelling, that heavenly dwelling. We long for that heavenly dwelling. Verse 5, and it is God who has prepared us for this very thing. In other words, God has put it in us to desire to be with Him. Part of the produce, the fruit of your salvation is this unquenchable longing and desire to be with God. And if that's true, then we long to be where God is. We long for heaven. Verse 6, So we are always of good courage, he says. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul's contrasting here of the temporary tent with this eternal dwelling of God is very clear. He's saying, believers, we long for heaven 
God has given us that longing, we would rather be away from this life and with the Lord. And if a global crisis, if racism and riots and widespread chaos should teach us anything, it should teach us as God's people the value of our hope in heaven. These last few weeks have been painful to witness. It doesn't take much time to watch the news to see that cities all across our country are on fire. That tensions are high. People are afraid. People are violent. People are divided. No good argument can be made today, right now, for the inherent goodness of humanity. And it is even more painfully obvious that the secular world has no way to explain not only what they're witnessing, but what they're doing. Take a, just a few brief articles and try to understand the world's perspective of the last few weeks. One article will call it justice. Another will call it revenge. One will call it passion. Another will call it emotionalism. One will call it productive. Another will call it destructive. On and on and on, it is abundantly, painfully obvious painfully clear there is no uniform or consistent understanding or explanation of the times that we live in from a world view worldly worldview the only possible accurate understanding of the times that we live in is that we live in a fallen sinful world that's the biblical worldview people are violent Tensions are high. People are divided. People are afraid. Because sin is reigning in our hearts. Because at the very basic level, we've abandoned God and rebelled against His Word and His law. People are lost. People are hurting. Nothing is as it should be. You can take people who disagree on the reasonings for the last week's events. You can take people who disagree on solutions for the last week's events. But they all agree on the singular fact that nothing is as it should be. That the world is certainly broken. Why is the world broken? That's where we differ from the world. We know the truth. The world is broken because it needs a savior. The world is broken because sin is in our hearts. And sin doesn't just affect our vertical relationship with God. Sin affects everything, including our horizontal relationships with each other. Adam, in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, was first and foremost, and most importantly, immediately separated from God on the moment he disobeyed. But also, what do we identify? He throws Eve under the bus. Not only does he blame God, this woman that you gave me, but he blames Eve. This woman gave this fruit to me. 
The effects of sin are everywhere. And the reason the world is broken, that nothing is as it should be, is because sin is abounding. You and I know the answer to sin, don't we? The world runs to politics and social justice and protest and, and all the tools that they have in their armory. But you know what we find all throughout human history? None of those things really address the real issue. We can accomplish some things by protest. Our country was founded by protest. We can accomplish some things through politics, through social initiatives. But those band-aids only last for a certain amount of time. Christians know the real answer. And it's expressed in the way that our Lord taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for the perfect economy of God to reign here on earth. We learn for, yearn for the gospel to go forth and impact people's souls and bring about the rule of heaven in their lives and in our communities. That's the answer. That's what we long for. That's the answer to sin's effects and sin's problems. It's salvation in Christ. And times like the times you and I are living in should certainly remind us that with Christ we long for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. We are people who long for heaven's rule and reign now. That's why we resonate with our brother John in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. You know how he ends Revelation? Come, Lord Jesus. Bring about heaven. I want us to briefly consider this the importance of heaven as our answer and the importance of heaven as our desire as God's people. First, heaven is our answer because the gospel makes us heaven people. People of heaven. In fact, we're going to look in a, in a moment that that is God's ultimate culminating plan, isn't it? The redemptive plan of God is not just so that you and I will feel good. The redemptive plan of God is to gather His people together in heaven with Him. That's where it's finalized. That's, that's its fulfillment. That's its crescendo. That's, that's where God is bringing all of human history to in His plan of redemption. So we're gospel people because that's the only way that God's plan and His ordaining will be brought about. So as you and I see the broken world around us, we should automatically yearn for the world to come. Look in 2 Peter, if you would, please. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. The Apostle Peter writes and says, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the desire of God's people. And that's the answer to a broken world. It needs to be done away with. It needs to be burned up and melted away and replaced with something better. And that's exactly what God's plan is. That's exactly what God's promise is. That He will usher in righteousness one day. Perfection one day. He'll make everything right. But secondly, heaven is not just our answer. It's our desire. And that's what I've been laboring to tell you. We ought to be a people who long more for heaven than anything or anywhere else. The problem is not that we think too much of heaven in this life. It's that we think too little of it. I've never met a Christian who's so heavenly minded that they're not engaged in this life. I've only met Christians who are too earthly minded that they never affect the eternal changes of heaven in this life. Paul expresses this desire that Christians should be people of heaven in a very famous verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'd rather be with Jesus. Colossians chapter 3. We just looked at this passage of Scripture. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, Paul is saying, be a people who long to be with Christ and be where Christ is. Be a people of heaven. John MacArthur laments this very same problem. He writes, quote, I often meet Christians who live as if heaven would be an unwelcome intrusion into their busy schedule. An interruption of career goals or holiday plans. End quote. And I fear John MacArthur is right. But that should never be true among the people of God, should it? We're citizens of a different country. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. We press on to a higher heavenly goal. Philippians chapter 3 verse 11. We set our minds on the things that are above with Christ, where Christ is at. Colossians chapter 3. We're people who live in light of, interpret this world in light of, walk in light of, speak in light of our heavenly home. What makes you light, what makes you and I salt, is not just the message of the gospel, though that's primary. It's that we are now strangers and aliens in a world we no longer belong to. It's that we're citizens of a heavenly spiritual home. One of righteousness and godliness and holiness. 
So it's a, it's a painful thing to hear a believer say, I'm okay with the Lord tarrying because I'm loving life right now. I'm okay if the Lord delays His day because I'm enjoying my children or grandchildren. The truth is, no matter how good things are in this life, no matter how many blessings, good gifts come from the hand of our God, none of them are to hold a candle to being in His presence in heaven. And part of our salvation changes our hearts to desire heaven more than anything else. And times like the times we live in serve the purpose of reminding us the value and importance of such a place. Now very quickly, I want to tell you what heaven is. I don't want to tell you what heaven is like because I don't want to jump down that rabbit hole. I want to tell you what heaven is. I was sharing with Sam this morning that a subject like this is too comprehensive for me to try to, to give an exhaustive account. I'm just giving you a glimpse. And my hope is that I don't leave you with more questions than answers. So I just want to stick to this question. What is heaven? And I think in answering that, we might begin to understand why it's to have a place of priority in our hearts and minds. First, let me highlight several ways Scripture refers to heavens or, or heaven. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, 7, and 8, it's referred to heaven as the skies or the cosmos, the heaven above, the expanse above. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus is preaching repentance. It's the first time we find Jesus preaching, and He's preaching repentance and the message of the kingdom of heaven. It carries a sense of authority, dominance. All throughout the Old Testament and New Testament as well, it's referenced in regards to God's judgment or blessing. I'm reading through the plagues in Egypt right now in Exodus, and fire rains down from heaven as judgment. In other places, we'll read of blessings that rain down from heaven. But primarily, when Christians refer to heaven, we're referring to that one singular divine dwelling place of God. The place where God's blessing and presence and glory are most obvious and abundant and even focused. I want to be careful. I don't want to say that is the only place God dwells because God transcends any place, even heaven itself. It is that place where God's presence and glory are most notable. Heaven as Scripture describes it in this regard, is the place of God's throne. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 6. Very quickly. You're going to have to move quick so we can look at several passages. Isaiah 6. Very familiar. Isaiah sees this vision of God at the beginning of his calling. It's a glorious picture of God on his throne I want you to take note especially of Isaiah's response to this vision. In the year, verse 1, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. Isaiah gets this brief glorious vision of the one on the throne in his throne room. And what does he respond with? He responds in confession. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm being undone by the presence and holiness and glory and righteousness of God. And then he responds with, with submission. Who will go? I will go. Because I have seen a vision of God and all of his glory. Ezekiel chapter 1. Flip to Ezekiel chapter 1. Let us behold another glimpse of God. It would be good for us to read the whole account. Verse 4 through the end of the chapter. But I will not. We will pick up in verse 26. Above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow. That is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. Keep flipping to Daniel chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Flip now to Revelation Chapter 4. Or listen as I read it very quickly. John writes and says, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns 
on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, worshipers and worshipers and worshipers. And on and on and on and on in this chapter, this glorious vision of this throne and the one on the throne, it wraps up in verse 10. The 24 elders fell fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. You know what's so striking out of all of those texts is the focal point is not the throne itself. It's the one who's on the throne. The throne is only as glorious as the one who sits on it is glorious. And the Scriptures say the glory of the One who sits on this throne is unlike anything you and I could ever fathom. And God invites us to Him to have eternal fellowship, eternal communion, eternal joy. Heaven is not just the place of God's throne. Heaven is the home of God's people. Jesus makes a glorious promise in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Is there a greater hope or greater promise for the people of God? Than for Christ to say to us, I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. In times of crisis, in times of hardship, and in times of trouble, that promise means everything to us. That promise is what we cling to. Finally, flip over with me in Revelation chapter 21, please. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What a glorious passage of Scripture. I will be their God and they will be my people. Where I am, they will be. The benefits of heaven are innumerable. No more death. 1 Corinthians 15. No more wickedness. Psalm chapter 1. The, the end of that psalm says the way of the wicked will perish. Not just the wicked. The very way of wickedness will perish. No more pain. No more sin. That sin that plagues us with shame and guilt. Gone. But the glory of heaven is not in all the benefits. The glory that is in heaven comes in being with Christ. The glory of heaven comes when God says, the dwelling place of God is with man. When God, who is infinitely holy, beautiful, wonderful, powerful, looks at sinful people and says, I love them, I will save them, I will, I will redeem them, I will prepare a place for them, and the dwelling place of God will be with them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. And every hindrance and every obstacle that is in the way of our relationship will be removed. We will have perfect fellowship for all eternity. Is there anything that stirs the believer's heart more than that? Maybe a close second would be when someone is converted. But nothing stirs our hearts more than the approving, shining face of God who welcomes us home to be with Him. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 4, it says, They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. The face of God seen in Jesus Christ for all eternity. Church, our, our world is hurting. Our world is broken. Our world is in chaos and turmoil. And we need heaven. We need the day for God's reigning to be permanent. The answer to a broken world is not broken solutions. It's a new world. It's the gospel. It's redemption. The redemptive work and plan of God. And the desire for you and I as Christians is to see that new work accomplished. I have to answer one last question for you. 
And that question is, how do we get it? How do we get heaven? It's a reality. And it's so painfully obvious that we need it. That this world is definitely broken. But you can have all the right information about heaven. Have all the right motives for heaven. Desire this perfect state with God. And yet if you don't know how to get it, it means nothing. But by God's grace, the answer on how to get it is also abundantly clear. John chapter 14 again. Jesus says that He goes to prepare a place for us. He will take us to Himself that where He is, we may be also. He says, you know the way where I'm going. Thomas, one of His disciples, said to Him, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We know and see him through Christ. If heaven is being in the presence of God for all of eternity, the glorious presence of God, the only way to be there is through Christ. And why is that important? It's, it's important because the Scriptures tell us no wicked thing will, will dwell in the kingdom of heaven. No, no unrighteousness will exist in the presence of God. So you and I need to be righteous, and yet we cannot be righteous. We cannot be perfect. We need one to be perfect for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes our sin, we get His righteousness. Christ takes every sin you've ever committed, thought, desired, so on, and we get His complete, total, full righteousness clothing us. So that He can pray in John chapter 17, Father, You have loved them just as You have loved me. And when God loves us in the righteousness of Christ because we've turned from ourselves and turned from our sins and trusted in Him alone for salvation, when He gives us that free gift, He unites us to Himself. And once united to Him, heaven becomes our home. When heaven becomes our home, we have a hope that gets us through crisis and gets us through difficulties and ushers us beyond this life. How do we get heaven? It's by turning to Christ. If you've turned to Christ, you have it as a guarantee. If you have not turned to Christ, heaven is not yours. But the free gift is still offered. I'd like to end with this last passage. I just want to read it. Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 13 through 16. This is the passage where it talks about all these, we call them heroes of faith, examples of faith. And verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. Times like this remind us that we have the only answer to the world's brokenness. And that answer is the gospel that produces within us the rule of heaven. And times like this remind us that our sole desire should be that of John's. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We desire heaven. We're strangers and aliens in this world. And we desire a far better country that God has prepared. So we praise God for that. And we live in light of heaven. Sharing that gospel message. Having hope and confidence. Being salt and light. I want to ask you to take a few moments and pray. I want to ask you to pray and ask God if heaven is your home. Ask if you are actually saved. And God will make that clear. If you're not saved, the scriptures say you can be. You only need to repent. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Confess him as Lord and Savior. If you're a Christian this morning and God's grace has made that known to you. Would you pray and ask that heaven would be your governing kingdom? That you would see this life through the lens of heaven, that you would desire heaven, that it would change the way that you live. Would you pray those things and here in a moment, I'll pray and we'll worship through one last song. Our Father, would you please make us people of heaven? People who are born again, people who are saved, people who have given our lives to you and now belong to a new home, a home that you've prepared, one of perfection and one where you dwell and we dwell with you. Father, we are guilty Not of thinking too much of heaven, but of thinking too little of heaven. And when we think too little of heaven, it's because we think too little of being with you. Give us a longing, a yearning, a desire to be with you. And as we see the brokenness of this world, let us long for it even more. But let us also provide the answer. Let us also proclaim to this world. That what we need more than anything is a Savior who will redeem us and usher in a new country, a new kingdom, heaven itself. Teach us, O Lord, in times like this, of the importance of looking to, longing for, and living under heaven. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection and the hope of eternal life with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.